another episode of the China Startup Pulse, your looking glass into the Chinese and Asian startup ecosystem for anybody that wants to launch, join, invest in startups, or simply wants to learn more about what's happening in this part of the world. In today's episode, our guest is going to be Greg Charlton, founder and CEO of 24-7 Tickets. Greg is going to share his journey as a foreign entrepreneur in China, how he started a business to solve his own problem and eventually became a leader in each category. Greg will share his own experience trying to build a business in the social commerce, an area that is very different, very unique to China as a foreigner, his challenges to grow, to fundraise in the company, and especially he's going to talk about the specific challenge of building a product that was originally designed for the expat community and that eventually ended up being a product for the vast majority in the large local market. Welcome to our podcast, Greg. So our guest today is Greg Charlton, founder and CEO of 247. Greg graduated in anatomy and philosophy. Physiology. <laughs> yeah, that was a tricky word. I knew it was going to be difficult. And, uh, but you actually never work on that. Like uh, after that, Greg had some family tradition on entrepreneurship. So he decided to take a very, very challenging sales job to try to start building the foundation uh, as an entrepreneur by doing. Then in a very high-pressure sales, he developed that skills, he learned the system, then he went and took other roles where he could develop all the skills necessary to run a company. Eventually, he was a little bit tired of the UK and decided to move to Shanghai where he had some friends. Luckily, he's girlfriend, wife, was able to take a job and that and a little bit more tutoring allowed him to a year, year and a half to actually plan what was his goal of going to Shanghai, which was building a company. Then while he was studying Chinese in an ECNU, he was looking into different type of businesses. So in case um, you have never come to Shanghai, 247 right now is probably the leading social commerce platform for entertainment. Almost everybody has ever like looked into them as a way to find the most interesting concerts and, and activities that are available in the market. But that's not what 247 was started. Like 247 originally was started as in, okay, well, while I'm looking for this new new business, um, I'm going to have this side thing. Uh, there's not a lot of music uh, options in China. Some of them are, but they're difficult to find. So I'm going to have this blog here. I call it 24-7 to try to have that. Greg. Welcome to the podcast. And how was that initial moment? I mean, why you decided to launch that? Thank you for a start. Pleasure to be here. So I think that it's easier to sort of describe really when we arrived in China, sort of what the landscape was like very quickly. And so imagine a world, if you can, probably very hard now without WeChat, right? Without the ability to be able to kind of promote and message and send links and posters and whatever to your friends or to your wider sort of um, network. When we came to China, myself and a friend of mine who we met here actually were very interested in, in sort of live music. And we ended up finding, after quite a lot of searching, a place called Yuntang. Yuntang is, was and is this sort of underground venue. Where at that point, pretty much that was the only place where where sort of bands could go along and, and play. So we went along and and we were kind of the music was really good, and there was about ten people there, and we sort of were trying to work out why that was, right? Why why no one was there? And what we sort of worked out was that there wasn't really the ability for for people and bands and artists or whatever who didn't have a lot of money um, to actually get 
promoting. They could promote to their friends and, you know, flyers and things like that and posters or whatever. But unless you had money, you couldn't advertise. And these guys were not charging a lot of money, you know, like 40 RMB or something to get in. So they're not not making racks of money. They were doing it because so they really... 40 RMB, like $6? And yeah. in yeah. Tang, normally they include a drink. So you get yeah, like... that's it. That's like, it, exactly. Like right? six bags and then you get a drink. That's it. And so these guys, one, were not in it to make money. So they were never going to make loads of money, right? You're not talking about bands that were suddenly going to like, you know, find themselves signed to like EMI and then, you know, off on the world tour. So we literally over a beer, we were like, you know, how can we... It was selfish, really. We were like, how can we make sure that we can go to more stuff like this? So how do we get more people to go to these things? And what we realized was that actually there wasn't really a platform or platforms that were kind of, this is going on in this club and this is going on in this bar, this happy hour or whatever. There was nothing really for like underground stuff, like um, artists, galleries, venues, you know, bands to actually get their stuff out. So we started just with a couple of us and, uh, and, uh, and lots of volunteers basically going to a lot of these gigs, writing reviews, allowing bands or whatever to, to post their own stuff. And to therefore, and then to promote that through email or, or through whatever. And, you know, we went into it with no thought about actually how we were going to make money out of it. In fact, that incarnation, we were never close to making money. But you were trying to solve your own problem. Yeah. I mean, you, you like the fact that uh, you like music and you wanted to find like new music. And the problem was that uh, that you're trying, that was your problem, but your problem existed because bands had a problem. There were yeah, yeah. no, there were no, there was no effective way for them to promote and, and let people know, hey, we're, we're playing here. Yeah, we're yeah. doing the, the, yeah. Yeah, and like remember, you got to remember as well. These bands, these guys in the bands, they have full time jobs. They have, you know, it's, it's not something like um, that they could like, spend a lot of time doing all this stuff themselves, right? Finding places to promote or whatever. So yeah, it came from a real sort of like problem, a selfish problem for us, and then solving a problem for them. We hoped allowing them to be to promote a lot easier with uh, in a platform that got them access to thousands of people rather than you know twenty people or thirty people that would maybe see their flyer or poster. So. Uh, let's leave uh, like Chinese internet history, but um, uh, do you remember what were the advertisement channels, the options? Because I mean, 10 years ago, if you think about advertisement in the rest of the world, come on, you use Google, like Google ads, uh, you put like few bucks on, on these and people that is looking for yeah. music here, music there. You can even go niche to be able to get people. And Baidu was already present here. Yeah. So what was the problem? Why there was no way for them to advertise? Well, a lot of the advertising channels were already taken up by brands, right? You know, who are paying lots of money. You know, Baidu is a perfect example of a company that, you know, is survives with advertising money, right? It doesn't survive because, you know, that someone's sort of brand is at the top of the search listing and they haven't paid for it, right? So same as Google, same as a lot of these sort of search and display networks. So to get something on Google, you either have to have, spend a lot of time doing a lot of SEO and, and a lot of like link sharing and all that stuff, which to be honest, no one can do unless you hire an agency to do it really, um, or you pay for it, which they couldn't afford. The other options were, you know, things like the expat kind of mags or whatever but again you know they need to make money so they need advertising money so maybe you know the editor maybe you can get something written about you but it's not regularly advertising you so very hard to do that without money and i think that everything really sort of revolves around having enough cash to be able to get yourself seen there wasn't really any sort of like boban probably was the place where most people really kind of push their stuff. 
What is Doban? Doban is like, it's an awesome sort of platform. It's really uh, focused on like music, books, culture. And it's really like this one sort of, it's a, a big community made up of small communities that are very interest-based. They, I read recently, I think it's like 700, 800 million, million unique users a month now or something. It's crazy. Like, Doban um, is an amazing company that most people don't know about them. Yeah. And uh, particularly the CEO, Yambuo, is one of the most, for me, is one of the most interesting entrepreneurs because yeah. they really kept the vision of the company so, without going through the craziness yeah, yeah. of um, that, that a lot of companies have gone yeah. in China. Like if you look at Doban's history, they've kept true to their, to their vision, I believe. They haven't necessarily sold out. They haven't done anything. They've tried to monetize, right? They've monetized through different things, but they've never monetized by changing the platform so much that users get annoyed and go somewhere else right you know it's been the problem in western social media and you know like your myspaces and stuff like that that people have lost interest because they've changed something critical to why those users really wanted to use it doban have been very clever and and managed to work out okay the reason why people like this is because we are a genuine we are a genuine community people can join together and um, they can discuss they can share they can they can be very interest based um if there was a company that we were sort of trying to sort of like emulate a little bit it would definitely be doban i mean going back to 10 years ago still some of the problems that exist in the advertisement industry the online marketing industry in china i mean you can see them today but 10 years ago was even worse like one of them is that basically anybody can go on google and create an, an adwords account and use that and you just need to put like five dollars yeah. fifty dollars and then promote yeah okay in here there's actually a barrier of entry you need to prove that you have a business license you need to yeah. prove ownership of lots of things to be able to promote in baidu and in most cases there's a minimum commitment to advertise yeah. that is way, 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 way higher. And, and even for some companies that have the, the licensing to do it, they, they cannot do it. Yeah. And uh, in the past, like 11 years ago, 10 years ago, most of the cost per click type of uh, business model was not super common. So most of the websites, most of the online properties, they were actually using cost per day. So you were actually renting a banner for a day uh-huh. uh, and you were paying for to have your company visible that day. And uh, that obviously creates a much more higher cost per minimum advertisement yeah. than the one that you that you have. Now, what is interesting is that uh, China has leapfrog and we're talking about um, about you running a social commerce company, not not an e-commerce company, mm. a social commerce company. Yeah. Can you explain us what, what's social commerce? What, why is this different? And how we compare that with a traditional e-commerce funnel? Okay, so when you look at sort of traditional e-commerce, you know, the, the most important thing is, well, it's the transaction and obviously then you know, if you're talking about marketing speakers, the referral afterwards, right? But e-commerce is all about one thing, getting you to part money, you part with your money because you want to buy something that I have. Social commerce is slightly different. Social commerce is about building up a relationship with you as a user on a genuine level so that you trust me enough to buy something for me at some point. So actually, my focus as a social commerce company is not necessarily to say, hey, you need to buy this. It's actually to be like, hey, look, we have this and we have this and we can build a genuine connection with you about your interests or or whatever, or your social community or your your network or whatever. And then when you want to buy something, you use us rather than someone else. You're more loyal to us because you already have this and your friends are already using us, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a different thing. Essentially, we're still wanting that transaction, but we're actually building a more meaningful relationship with you as a user 
And so therefore, a lot of our resources or whatever goes into, into that part of it. So you find that social commerce companies, for example, have a um, higher lifetime value of customers. They have a much higher stickiness because people are either focused on the community themselves and they're focused on the, you know, wanting to use the platform because of the offering from that platform or all their friends use it and their friends are sharing to them and their friends are saying, hey, if we do this together, we can get this. So it's like it's a much more sort of broader approach from a social side, you know, rather than just focusing on the one user, you're actually focusing on a group. So not having this option for these uh, low barrier of entry for people to be able to activate and feed the funnels through traditional uh, paid marketing was a could be a reason for the development of social commerce in China. Definitely. But why do you think this developed so much? Is there any, any particular reason why you think social commerce has been more successful than, than traditional e-commerce or is at least growing more yeah. here? It's very hard at the moment. And I think you, you sort of hit the nail on the head there when you said about, you know, the barriers to entry from traditional marketing, right? So not only is it expensive, but also now it's very, very hard to find the sweet spot of where it, you're not hemorrhaging money to get, you know, users. Like we've, we obviously being a startup, we've, we've tested lots, we've failed lots, we've, we've kind of um, done a lot of that stuff. And what you find is that it's very hard to get actually proper users. So you can bring people onto your platform, you can pay for whatever you want. You, know, you can get millions of people on if you really want, but they're not really users. They're not people that are actually genuinely interested in what you have. So like, from a when you're a startup or a scale up and you're looking at sort of avenues to be able to bring on users, user acquisition, right? That's all social commerce really is. It's about user acquisition. And um, so, you know, you have to look at different avenues. And in China, the thing you look at is the social networks, the the willingness of Chinese people generally to share a lot more and to interact a lot more online through apps web apps or whatever, than I believe anywhere else. I think the rest of the world is catching up for sure. But I think that that really the willingness and the ability for people to be able to share something like WeChat, for example, is a big, huge plus for allowing people to be able to share stuff, for example. You're talking a lot about the, the habits and, and how Chinese people behave, how they use uh, social media. But when you started 247, you started to this to solve your own problem. Mm, yeah. You don't look Chinese. <laughs> You're not Chinese. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Good I point. mean, how was the, I mean, we were talking a lot about that and, and obviously you know the story of the company, but originally 247 was platform uh, providing mm. content in English, yeah. sharing content in English. Very much. Were you just solving a problem for English speaking people that was not able to find content available in English or was that, because you're talking about these bands having like 10 people. So, it's not. It was not just a problem of. No, a, no. So it, it was that a problem also? Like like the demand for that specific vertical, was it just too niche for for China? I think that yeah, you're absolutely 100 right. When we started, it was to solve a very sort of niche, easy problem. You know, we were as you say solving our problem, and then therefore helping solve other people like us problem, and then. On the flip side, you did have the problem that bands and venues or whatever weren't getting the, the foot traffic that they that they wanted. Um, but we didn't really think about it like that. We sort of really, to be honest, we were kind of going through it and then we started getting bigger and more and more people, more and more traffic onto the site and more and more people wanting us to do things for them. And we realized actually, when you look at it, the behavior of a 20-something expat in China is actually quite similar 
to a 20-something Chinese person, right? They have the same motivations, right? They kind of want to go and see the same things, right? There's obviously different motivations in various parts, but they have the motivation, for example, to use social media, pretty similar, actually. They have the same sort of motivation to go and see stuff. They have the same motivation to want to experience things. And what we started realizing that, yes, there was obviously huge difference between an expat and a Chinese person. But actually, the things that they had in common, if we focused on those things, actually, we could test a lot of the stuff within this niche audience that we had a lot of control over, pick the things that sort of worked, and then cherry pick the stuff and then use that on the Chinese audience to see, you know, what works and what didn't. It was almost like a testing ground, right? And at the same time, being able to provide a service to expats. You know, I I hate the way that sometimes people say, look, oh, why are you focusing on that niche? There's only, you know, whatever. But, but, you know, if you're a B2C company, you're providing a service anyway for these people. So I don't really care if it's like 20 or 30 people. If I'm making their lives a bit better and also from a company point of view, we're maybe being able to test some things and, and sort of help us a little bit, I'm fine with that. I think that that is something that's lost sometimes is that people only start businesses because, well, look how far we could look at, look how big we can become, look at the, and we don't care about the the small sort of users. And the, I think that actually you can have sort of both, you know, you obviously need to make money. So you need to have a plan to be able to kind of get into a market that's maybe a bit bigger to, to make that money. But it doesn't mean that you don't have to, um, that you can't help other people at the same time. You know what I mean? So backing that with data, you said that um, you started solving this problem of a 20-something-year-old foreigner in China. And uh, you mentioned that this is this is very similar to the, the interest and demands of a 20-something-year-old in China. Right now, yeah, right now, 2 for 7 is, is available both in Chinese yeah. and English. Yeah. I mean, what, what's the percentage of users that are coming from the Chinese side? Yeah, so we've had a... You know, a massive shift, and and I think when we start 2016, for example, I think probably about two percent of our users were were Chinese. Now it's about 65, 70 percent, and that was a real sort of shift for us. It's a strategic shift, right? You know, we did want to do. If you look, I was looking at our old investment decks actually the other day, and we had this graphic where we're like, this is what we want to do, and. You know, at one point it was like, you know, it's expats, then internationalized Chinese, then local Chinese with international influences or whatever. And we had this little dot, where are we? And it was just after the expat bit. And now we're sort of past the, you know, very much in the internationalized Chinese and returnees and and that side of stuff. So like um, it was the plan from the start, but really it, the international sort of outlook of 24-7 has always been, I think, something and the founders and the management team have always felt that that's actually quite a unique advantage for us because you automatically get that sort of trust, you know, international shows, for example, that both expats and Chinese people want to go and see. We're seen as sort of the international experts. Whether we are or not, it's still the, a sort of brand message that we can say, look, we're bringing you know, a sort of some international influence, Chinese influence, pushing them together and coming out with a product that I don't believe anybody else is really close to at the moment. So yeah, so like for us, it was like, you know, the percentage, I remember thinking about a year and a half ago that I would be happy with sort of 40, 60, 60% expat, 40% Chinese at this point. We've eclipsed that. And a lot of it is due to, you know, not to, to China Accelerator's, Horn, but like a lot of it was within China Accelerator program, 
allowing us to focus on actually what really mattered, looking at the data and working out things that work, channels that worked, and then doubling down on those things rather than this scattergun approach that we sort of had, I think, a bit before that. So you got a really good a point that I think is interesting. No? When we talk about international entrepreneurship, like foreign entrepreneurship in, um, in China, there's a lot of situations when people talk about um about okay what what's the edge that you have like what what is your your angle you mentioned your angle very clearly and that's something that there's a demand for here so that was good but uh, the second like the second thing that a lot of people that comes to China ask is like you need a Chinese partner mm. did you have a Chinese partner when you started the business well we sort of did <laughs> we did it but it was someone who was part of the sort of the team when we first started off and it was really someone who just helped us out a lot with kind of local issues right when we were talking about you know trying to get licenses and things like that that was where the shift was and we were like actually we need help on this side you know we need a chinese partner to come in and help us but it wasn't you know you hear these sort of stories like oh i need a chinese partner so i'm going to go my lawyer knows this guy who's done a company before and they're going to get this guy in and then two years later you haven't got a company and he's run off or whatever it was never like that best chinese partners are always translators <laughs> like when you arrive you know you understand anything and then oh, this this person understands the world and makes me like this, this is the best <laughs> yeah. thing i love that <laughs> absolutely you know like and i think for so for us like you know we didn't just have a chinese partner because that's what everyone else was doing. We had a Chinese partner because he was the best person for the job, right? It wasn't just because they were Chinese. It was because he understood exactly what we were doing. And what's the moment when you think this, this partnership is, is necessary? What, what was the point when you said, okay, we actually need to have that? Like, what were the, like, the situations where you say, no, that's, that's not working. We need to bring in somebody that, yeah. that can talk about things in a different way. Yeah. And why, why do you think you were not the right person to do that? So I think that where it started really when we started selling tickets and we started selling more tickets, more than we thought we were going to at that point. I think one of the first events we did, we thought we were going to sell about 20 tickets. We sold about 300. And within about three or four months after that, we were selling for big venues, big promoters or whatever. And then suddenly you have the question, oh, where's your ticketing license? Or, you know, how are you, you know, what about your accounting? Or how, can you produce a FAPIA? All this stuff. And although you sort of have these things in place, you're like, you know what? I don't want to go on the side of like just chancing it because if you chance it, sure enough in the future, you will get caught out. So at that point we were like, we, you know what? We need to make sure our licenses are correct. We need to make sure that we have enough knowledge to allow us to be able to continue this as a foreign company, like we're a woofy. So we have to do things sometimes a little bit more not more proper, but we just got to make sure that we're we're doing everything 100% above the line, way above the line, right? So, so for us, that was the point. It was the point when we were starting to get asked, you know, about licensing and about budgeting, for example. And, you know, like we, our payment terms are great for us in a way because because of our license, we have to hold money. So because we're liable for any refunds. So we end up holding quite a lot of money that isn't technically ours, you know, we then have to pay to the promoters. So things like that, we have to be very, very careful with because essentially we, we've got a stack of money that isn't ours. We need to make sure that that's ring fenced, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of that stuff, a lot of that structure as a foreigner, I don't care how long you've been here. I don't care how good your Chinese is. I don't care who your family are. You need someone who is Chinese, who understands that stuff. And that's when we started, started building the team that really is the same team as we have now. Um, key players, A players who 
not only Chinese, but also understand the business and have helped myself and the other co-founders kind of get to where we are. So one of the side effects of the, like, starting to work with the, with the Chinese side is obviously you have more demand, then more demand makes you more interesting mm -hmm. for new venues, new promoters, big players want to, yeah. want to work with you. And that also comes with, with challenges. So yeah. you already mentioned one, the need to have a much, a much more formal infrastructure. Yeah. If you really talk about this transition in terms of culture, even branding from the outside of a purely expert-oriented service to a... Um, I'm not going to say mass market, but a more open type yeah. of, uh, of market. What were the challenges in, in that process? You know, I think that I could list a million challenges, to be honest. You know, it, from an internal point of view, recruitment, retention, culture, very, very, we found that very hard. We still find it very hard. We spend a lot of money and a lot of time making sure our culture is a good place that's, you know, has this multicultural sort of vibe. And we've massively failed at that in the past. We've lost some good people because we weren't, we didn't understand quite how important culture was within a company when you have people from different cultures working together. From an outside point of view, we are, you know, we are still seen as a sort of, you know, foreign company sometimes. So therefore the challenges of being of negotiation, for example, and for companies who still have a little bit of distrust over the whole kind of woofy thing, like historically woofies, right? More than 10, 15 years ago now could do anything they wanted. You know, you could park where you wanted, you could do what you wanted. But now obviously that's completely different, but there's still that sort of thinking. Sometimes when you deal with with, with Chinese companies, um, especially sort of promoters who have been here around for years and years and years, they still have that sort of little bit of distrust. So it's hard to get over that. And it's also for us as a brand message, as a, as a company that tries to get a message across, it's sometimes hard because it's sometimes a little bit difficult to really differentiate who we are. You know, are we focused on expats? Are we focused on Chinese? Well, how, we, how, do we, how do we differentiate that? And how do we, where do we put the resources to do it? So I think that that is still now difficult. It's still now hard for us to, like, I can't sit in front of you now and say we have everything sorted, done, everybody's happy. You know, it's still like a constant sort of like challenge to make sure that we are, all these things are sort of coming into place and our brand is the brand that we want people to see basically. And of course, I mean, in any process of change, there are things that are more difficult than what you thought, but there's also things that, uh, that were easier than what you thought. So mm. what was for you surprisingly, like you were like really concerned about this is going to be like super difficult. And eventually when actually way smoother than what you thought. Yeah. So I think, I think actually one of the, one of the most interesting things is when we started taking on big promoters. So we dealt with a lot of small promoters and underground promoters or whatever, where it's very sort of like, you know, you go out for a drink and you're like, Hey, let's work together. Cool. How are we going to do that? Brilliant. Next week we're doing it. Big promoters, obviously, especially international promoters, they're doing a tour of, you know, 30 cities, got a huge artist or whatever. And when we were going for that business, I remember the first time we went for a big bit of business with a huge promoter, biggest promoter in the world. We spent hours, if not days, working out the pitch, doing the deck, making sure that this is our extra advantage. We can do this analytics. We can do all this stuff and like practice and practice. Went to this meeting. I've sat down got the, the laptop open, put the presentation up. And within two slides, the guy was like, yeah, of course, we'll work with you. That's fine. And then, <laughs> <laughs> but we were just sat there going, okay, right. So, and then what we realized was that actually for them, it's not a huge risk. 
they just want to make sure that you're legal and that you can do whatever you know that first step into working with a big client is not necessarily that hard what's hard is sort of proving each time every every time you work with them that you're sort of getting better but for us being quite young quite naive or whatever we really did think that was going to be the hardest thing and once we got that everything was going to be brilliant and we're going to be made actually it was a lot easier to get and a lot harder to keep you know that's the real learning experience from that there's also been a lot of things where you just sort of like you know you hear about all these stories about the amount of red tape to do certain things here so you're geared up for that and you've got you know you've spoken to your lawyer and they said oh you know this is going to be really difficult to do we need to make sure that we meet beforehand and spend hours going through everything and you go along to this meeting with a government official or whatever and within a minute they're like yeah everything's fine let's do it and you sort of walk out going i've just spent three thousand dollars on that lawyer to t- <laughs> for that meeting maybe and- that's when you spend three thousand dollars. maybe right i didn't see where they went afterwards actually <laughs> But yeah, like China is constantly surprising me. Some things you think should be the easiest thing possible are the hardest thing ever. And other things you think are going to be the thing that's going to ruin your business. And within seconds, everything's okay. And it's, and it's actually a win. And I, that's sort of why I, I curse sometimes, but I also love it here. You know, it's that sort of feeling that, you know what, you can actually do stuff and you, and some things are, are harder, but you know what, it's still a lot more opportunity, I think. So exactly, I mean, in, in your, your area of this type of high quality entertainment, curated live shows, mm-hmm. uh, there's not a lot of players in, in the space. But if, at the end of the day, what you're doing is, is a solution for entertainment. Mm-hmm. From the point of view of the consumer, they, don't, they might not care too much if they just go, decide to go to the cinema or to a museum or like they just yeah. want to do something uh, that has a little bit of content yeah. in what they're doing. And some of your competitors in that space or some of the alternatives in that space, they're actually super well funded yeah, yeah, well, and, yeah, and, and backed by, by some of the big companies. Yeah. What's your age compared to them? Like how's your relationship with, with them? Are, are you like greatest enemies and, and you never talk with each other? Mm. <laughs> how, how, how's your relationship with them? Well, you know, like we're in the, um, the amazing space that food delivery and a few other things are. We're sort of, Either side of us is BAT, right? So it's an interesting one. We worked, this is what I always say when I ask this question, is that we have competitors everywhere, not just in the ticketing space. You obviously have like Dalmai and people like that who are players who've been around for years. They are the dominant sort of force from a transactional point of view. You also have like things like the community sites, like Doban, for example, who we're sort of in competition with as well. So there's lots of places we are in competition. What we tried to do from the start, though, was find a sort of space for us to sit that allowed us to be able to sort of work with as much of the competition as possible so that we hoped when it came to it, you know, we'd already had that relationship and and we'd be able to sort of like work something out. I'm not saying that Dama are going to turn around and go, hey, we're not going to destroy you because we're best mates, but we were offering them some sort of advantage as well. So for us, that space was the international, right? That was working with international promoters um, who wanted to come to China and needed an English language side, right? If we'd gone to these promoters and said, hey, we're a ticketing company, give us some tickets. They'd gone, yeah, but what about Dama or WePiao or all these hundreds of other ticketing sites? What we did, we said, hey, look, we're the only ones that can offer you English language. You need English language because your investors want you to be able to sell and be an international sort of promoter. We can provide that. We'll also do the Chinese side, but don't worry about that bit. And then that's how we then started sort of into that. And we were at the top table. We were sitting within a few months of us starting pretty much. We were sat at the same table as 
the huge ticketing companies because we were seen as another channel, a valuable channel. And then what happened was that we pushed more towards the distribution side of stuff. So the big ticketing companies very rarely work together, working, you know, they just don't. If they've got an event, they very rarely give it to anyone else. Whereas where we sit, we can work with all of them. So we take tickets, we give them to other people, we distribute through China, we work with international promoters being their you know, exclusive distribution channel here. For example, NHL is a, is a, is a good example recently of, of us completely running the distribution and giving tickets to the other ticketing companies because those ticketing companies can work with us because they don't see us massively as a threat and because we hold this sort of spot which no one else can sort of take at the moment. So I think that for us, our whole strategy was to work with as many competitors as possible because they help us actually. And we help them. Sometimes they can't sell their tickets. So they come to us and say, can you distribute for us? So it's a very sort of um, the business. If you're just talking about ticketing is a bit of a sort of strange place. You just got to make sure that you're sort of providing value for all the different stakeholders because you're right. They're all amazingly well-funded and they're, established and you know it, if you were going to go head to head with them well i just wouldn't recommend it unless i don't know you've got okay. some huge money behind you so talking about about well-funded competitors mm. you actually have managed to to raise some money i mean you were profitable almost from a very early stage of the company which yeah. is like um, uncommon in the space but but you did raise some money so how, yeah. how was this how was the experience of raising money in china As, as a foreigner? Slow. <laughs> I think is, uh, is uh, anyone that's thinking about raising money here from a foreign perspective, certainly in our experience, is that you add on six months to what you think. For us, it was very hard to to go to investors and and say, hey, look, we're this platform. First question is, well, how, why are you different to those guys? And they've got millions and you've got nothing. How are you possibly going to beat them? And when I first started fundraising, which was, you know, just after China Accelerator or even within China Accelerator, I didn't get that. So I was going into meetings. I had loads of VC meetings and I was going in and saying, hey, we're different because, and they just didn't believe me. You know, they're just like, no, you're not. You're a foreigner. How can you possibly go against this competition? So was that that you didn't have enough data to back who you were? So it was not a problem of, it was not a problem that they were not interested. It was not a problem that your messaging was not the right messaging. It was a problem that you didn't have enough evidence yeah. uh, for them. And did you have the evidence or you didn't have the evidence in a way they could trust? Yeah, we had what we thought was mar product market fit. Looking back, we definitely didn't. We didn't have enough of it. We didn't have enough data to back that up. So it was really my word against whichever analyst or partner I was talking to. And so therefore, you know, after the however many meeting, I came out and, and essentially, you know, just thought to myself, right, we need to do something now to get to allow us enough time to be able to find this sort of product market fit or at least be able to prove that the team we have in place is the team that's going to be able to to kind of like move forward. So rather than looking within China, I then started looking outside of China. I looked at Hong Kong, back to the UK, for instance, tapped up old colleagues, friends, family, uh, a couple of angels in Hong Kong, a couple of um, guys that had been in the entertainment industry, a guy that had been in the ticketing industry, and basically said, look, we just need this amount 
And if we haven't done what I said we're going to do after this amount, then it's all a risk, but I'll walk away and everyone can say that I'm wrong. And it was a, it, looking back, it felt like a, a big gamble, but it really wasn't because we, we sort of knew. We knew that the community was just starting to take off. Like you, we saw some great traction within the communities and we started making more money. Um, we had a lot more sort of, we were taking on new clients very quickly and very easily. So we knew something was happening. We just needed that little bit more time. And that's when we did the seed round, right? Um, to get us to the point where we, we, we then did our pre-A. But that period between sort of raising that seed amount and doing our pre-A was very stressful because we obviously didn't have a huge amount of money. We really needed to make certain things work. And then, you know, the problem is, as I said right at the start, is that it takes a lot longer. For us anyway, it took a lot longer than we expected. So, you know, we started, we bootstrapped till then, we were profitable till then, we then weren't profitable, obviously. And suddenly our whole sort of mindset of like, what we're doing, you know, how we kind of controlling the costs, et cetera, et cetera. On one side, we're going, no, we need to move fast. And the other side, we're going, but we're going to run out of money. It was a very sort of interesting sort of eight, nine months, I think it was in the end. But yeah. Um, and then pre-A, we went back to some old investors. Um, we looked out some new ones and the conversation was very different. The conversation this time was like, look, we said we were going to do this and we did it. We've done 3x growth. Now is the time for us to be able to really prove ourselves. Um, and so it was a little bit easier, still took a long time. Again, the biggest thing for us was proving that a majority sort of expat founding team could do something in China in a, what's seen as a quite traditional business. But I think from uh, for us, the sort of shift of so to, to some more commerce, to more community and the proof that our communities were working was the thing that allowed us to be able to to sort of get the funding a little bit easier than than earlier. And what's in the future right now for two for seven? You know, we've got quite a few things on. <laughs> We're really, really pushing the community side of stuff. We've got some really exciting updates coming out. And we've got a few mini programs that are going to be hitting in the next month or so that is going to really allow us to leverage the community we have. And we hope to bring more people into the sort of the, our sort of big community, we're focusing very much on making things personalized. So the recommendation engine, the AI side of stuff that's going to personalize things to allow people to be able to save a lot of time, hopefully a lot of money in, in, in what they want to do. And our whole ethos really, and what we're trying to push over the next year is that you should spend less time in front of your computer and in front of your phone and more time doing stuff in the entertainment side. So we're really focusing like a lot of technology and, and, and a lot of sort of product iteration on that idea that actually people don't really want to be spending lots and lots of time searching for stuff. They just really want to go out and do stuff and they want to be part of a community and they want to sort of share their experiences. So yeah, so that's our, our sort of big thing for this year. A lot of product iteration and a lot of kind of cool stuff within social within mini programs and stuff that's uh just a part of the ecosystem that we're really excited about just sort of you know yeah leveraging these sort of relationships to kind of like help people thank you very much greg for sharing all of these um, experience of um, building a company as a lot in china and being able to cross that gap that that chasm of uh, of building a product for an for an international audience and then becoming increasingly something quite relevant for the mainland China yeah. consumers. If anybody wants to contact you, how can they reach out to you? 
Yeah, so, you know, we are always looking for sort of talented A players to join our team, especially in tech and product, especially in AI, for example. We are also looking for partners, you know, like we talked a lot today about the big promoters or whatever, but actually we work with a lot of community groups and and people, individuals putting on amazing events and doing some amazing things. So we're always happy to help that side as well. We have got you know, great community rates that we can sort of help you build your own sort of community. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Greg Charlton, G-R-E-I-G, Charlton. You can also um, email me um, at gc at 247tickets.com. Thank you, Greg. No worries. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I just want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, China Accelerator. They are a accelerator based in Shanghai, bringing international ideas into China and Chinese Ideas International. They're number one in what they do. They're a three-month program and they help build your idea and make it amazingly successful. You can find out more at www.chinaaccelerator.com. People Squared is the original co-working space in China. It's your home for startups, no matter what you're working on. Small team or large, it has all the resources, the environment, the culture, everything that you need to take your idea and make it successful. Founded by Bob Jung, an entrepreneur himself who really understands what startups need, it's a great place to bring your team and find success. You can find out more at people-squared.com. <laughs>